morning, everyone. Last time I preached, we finished the study of 1 John, the letter of 1 John, and uh, today I would like to study a, a uh, somewhat awkward incident involving um, the Apostle John and his brother uh, over in Matthew chapter 20, so you can start turning there. Jesus had just finished announcing for the third time that he is going to die, and he is going to suffer and die. And we're going to study this passage here in Matthew 20, uh, verses 20 to 28. Uh, we'll read this passage. I'll, I'll make, instead of reading it all at once, I'll make comments um, as we go. And then after that, we'll um, pick out a few lessons that I think we can learn from this passage. And then we will uh, wrap things up with um, answering a couple questions about greatness and uh, how we should or, or should not pursue greatness. So Matthew 20, verse 20, I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked them for something. We're going to review who these three characters are. There was James and John, the third and fourth disciples to be chosen by Jesus, the sons of Zebedee, also known as the sons of thunder. I don't know if Zebedee ever knew that his sons were called the sons of thunder. I don't know how he would have felt about that. James and John, and then there was their mom, who I guess was the wife of thunder. Her name is Salome. Over in Matthew chapter 27, verse 56, it tells us her name, Salome. Uh, Salome, actually, I think is a better pronunciation. She was a believer. And, and, and in a time when Jesus, opposition to Jesus was growing, she did not come, we should notice this, she did not come up to Jesus and say, please, can you let my two boys stop following you and go back to the fishing business? She didn't ask for that. Uh, she was okay with her sons following Jesus, and she was, in fact, a follower herself. Uh, she was one of the women who watched Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, that's recorded in Mark. She was one of the first to discover the tomb was empty. So these three characters come up to Jesus with a petition. Verse 21, And he said to her, What do you want? He said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. So that's, that's the request. Whose bad idea was this? Uh, we don't know, really, for sure. I mean, for all we know, it could have been Zebedee's. Not, I'm not sure why he wasn't around. Maybe it wasn't his idea. I think James and John were the real instigators, and, and for two reasons. Uh, the first reason is that after this request is made, the rest of the exchange is just between Jesus and James and John. Salome is not, not really involved after that. And over in the Mark account, the mother is not even mentioned. So I think James and John put her up to this, and she was just kind of the spokesperson. Why would they do that? Why would James and John get their mom involved? Well, here's one other detail about Salome. 
She was probably Jesus' aunt, actually. In Mark, and the reason we think this is because over in Mark, uh, her name is listed as one of those who watched the crucifixion. And over in John, in the, in the same account, where the same list of women is, is read off, um, accounted, it does not use her name, but it refers to a woman who was the sister of Mary. So if you connect the dots, it looks like Rome may have been Jesus. Yes. You know, it's interesting thing for me to think about that when Jesus came in the flesh, um, you know, he became part of the human race, and uh, these relationships were real. I mean, Salome, Jesus' aunt, I guess she still is his aunt. Mary still his mother. These are uh, real relationships. Um, he, he really became part of the human race. But maybe because she was Jesus' aunt, maybe they thought there would be some extra leverage because of that. Um, maybe they thought that Jesus would be more open to the idea if it didn't look like they were the ones who came up with it. Um, you know, their idea, you know, take it or leave it. But it, if that's what they were trying to do, it, it did not work. Uh, Jesus thought through it quickly. What were they asking for? They're asking for these seats to the left and right of Jesus. Um, basically, they're asking to be next in command to Jesus. Second to Jesus in the chain of command. So to recap, James and John and their mom bring a request to Jesus. A request that would, if granted, would elevate them above all the other of Jesus' uh, disciples. You will notice who happens to not be around in this little special occasion. Present were James, John, their mom, and Jesus. But noticeably absent are the other ten disciples. They, they were not around at this point. I guess it, it just didn't suit. They just happened to be somewhere else. You know, James and John, they may have been a little clueless, but, but not so clueless that they uh, couldn't guess how the other ten might feel about it. And so the other ten, they chose a time when the other ten were not around. The timing of this request was not great. It, it, Jesus had just finished telling them he's going to suffer and die. And for them to come up with this request was kind of insensitive. Um, you know, it, it's almost as bad as saying to someone on their deathbed, I'm so sorry you're going to pass away. Can I have your car? You know, just looking for something here. But on the other hand, so this is, this, is a, this is bad timing, but on the other hand, in spite of growing opposition and Jesus speaking grimly about the future, this mom and her sons believe that Jesus is still going to have a kingdom someday and, and reign. And, and so I have kind of a, a grudging admiration for them at the same time. I have mixed feelings about this. But I do have some, some grudging admiration for their confidence, even if they surely do not understand what, what is really going to happen. So back to verse 22 now. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. You do not know what you are asking. 
For one thing, they did not know what, what kind of kingdom this was going to be. They didn't understand the significance of the positions, the positions they were asking for. They did not understand the price that, that would, would have to be paid to uh, take that kind of position, those positions. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Or in markets, it adds, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. So it sounds like these two, these two things are a real thing. It sounds like they are a real thing. But there is a qualification uh, that must be met in order to be a candidate for these seats. If, if you want to reign with me, Jesus is basically saying, you're going to have to suffer with me. You want to sit with me, then suffer with me. And, and a similar statement can be said about all of us. That if we want to share in Christ's glory, we must be willing to share in his suffering. In 1 Peter 4, Peter writes, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. James and John, their answer is, yes, we are able. And I have to think that they knew that Jesus was talking about suffering. He said this cup or this baptism. I have to think they knew Jesus was talking about suffering. I don't think they realized the extent of the suffering he was talking about. I don't think they realized what they were signing up for. But I am kind of impressed, again, by their tenacity. You know, if it had been me, I would have said, you know, on second thought, I just realized um, my motivation is all wrong, and I would just be happy to be a janitor in your kingdom. In fact, I think Peter would be a good candidate for this seat next to you. Uh, they, were, they were pretty overconfident. They, they couldn't see the future. And we can't see the future either. We don't know what our walk is going to cost us in terms of suffering. But I am impressed that they were willing to say, yes, we can. Uh, but they, they were willing to suffer. At least they, they think they are willing. And so there, there is some faith here. I, I want to notice that. There is some faith here, and it is going to grow. Continuing in verse 23, he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. You will drink my cup. Now, now notice that Jesus has not rebuked anybody yet. Uh, it would seem like you would have grounds to have rebuked him by now, but he hasn't. And he really doesn't. How this account wraps up my account as a, as a rebuke, but he really does not rebuke. Um, anyway. Now, other times he, he rebukes the disciples pretty sternly, but in this case, he doesn't. I, I'm not sure why. I just, I'm just noticing that you know, just because there's call for rebuke doesn't necessarily uh, mean maybe that we always have to do that. Jesus says, you will drink my cup. You're right. The, the, uh, re- the request by these two, it shows that they've got a long way to go in and in their walk with Jesus, a lot to figure out yet, but Jesus says, you are going to suffer with me. 
Now, just a side note here about drinking this cup of that, that um, Christ is going to bring to drink. This takes my mind back about 10 to 15 years ago when Jim Gearing was here. And he, was, he had a week, weekend meeting, he was preaching on the subject of atonement. And he referenced this verse to make a point, and I think it was a pretty good point. And he was saying, uh, one of the arguments he was making that weekend was that the cup that Jesus drank was not the cup of God's wrath. And this verse would, would, would definitely support that. If James and John drank the same cup that Jesus drank, it was a cup of suffering, not the, not the cup of, of God's wrath. I just wanted to make that side note and uh, make you think of Jim Gearing. Jesus goes on to say, But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. There will be places of special significance in the kingdom. In fact, in another place, Jesus said, The twelve are going to sit on twelve thrones, but the right and the left hand seats are prepared and given by the Father. It's, it's just another interesting case in which the Father has a different role from the Son. Jesus, you know, He's in heaven preparing a place for us. The Father is going to be the one who chooses to sit on His left and right. Verse 24, And when they, when, when the ten heard it, now they, they must reassemble. When the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. They were indignant. And they might have felt a little noble in their in indignation, like we can sometimes. You know, they, they, James and John are so self-promoting. They are in a tour. They were scheming. They did it behind our backs. It was not right. It was insensitive of them to act that way. And they, they have some basis for being indignant here. They did have some basis. But I think the major part of their indignation was they did not appreciate the idea of James and John being elevated over them. They couldn't stand the idea of James and John having more authority than they did. And I think the fact that Jesus reassembled them and called them all together uh, shows the, that the whole group has, has the same problem. I mean, just Matthew 18 couple chapters back, they were arguing about who is the greatest, and we'll argue about that one more time yet. They all wanted greatness, in, and in the wrong way. So here's what Jesus says in verse 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is calling his disciples to follow his example of, of lowly service. This is something that he has already tried to get across to them once. Jesus often had to repeat himself. Just uh, as I said already, back in Matthew chapter 18, um, when they were first arguing about who is the greatest, Jesus tried to pound this lesson. Here he's trying again. Back in Matthew 18, he told them, "Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven." And over in Mark, he said in Mark chapter 9, "If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all." And so here he's expanding on that idea a little bit. 
things are going to be upside down in the kingdom of heaven. And greatness is found not by pursuing greatness, but by pursuing lowly service, just as Jesus came to earth not to be great was not his focus. His goal was to seek the law, not greatness. Now, what is he talking about when he says, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and exercised authority over them? It shall not be so among you. What is Jesus forbidding? Is he saying leaders in his kingdom should not exercise any authority? What exactly is he saying here? I've got a few ideas about uh, these verses. Peter was one of the indignant ten who was present at this occasion. And later on in 1 Peter chapter 5, he expands on, um, I think, what Jesus is, is presenting here in a very, um, I'll just read these verses from 1 Peter 5. You know what these verses say already, probably. But I think they help us understand Jesus' intention. Peter says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And so shepherds are supposed to lead by example. They're supposed to not be domineering, and they are also supposed to exercise oversight, which I don't think it is possible to exercise oversight without exercising some authority. I don't think it's possible. I've tried to think my way out of that, and I don't think there's any way to exercise oversight without exercising authority. So I don't think Jesus is saying leaders in his kingdom should not exercise any authority. I think he is saying they should not exercise authority as the Gentile rulers do. I'll give you a couple ways in which church leaders or anyone with authority in the kingdom should be different from the Gentile rulers of Jesus' day. Number one, the purpose is different, whereas the priority for worldly rulers is to preserve their throne, expand their power, expand their greatness. That is not to be the priority of leaders in Christ's kingdom. An earthly ruler, a worldly ruler, if they think their power is being compromised, they will likely choose to protect themselves over what is good for the people or what is right. Two examples that come to mind from Jesus today are Herod Antipas, beheading John the Baptist, beheading James, Pontius Pilate, leaving Jesus over to be crucified. Men driven by self-interest, Christ's servants, who are in a place of leadership, must have a different priority, which is to serve God and serve Christ. Also, their, their involvement is different. Worldly rulers are up here, and the common people are way down here, and there's really not a lot of mixture. Now, today's politicians try to, they try to play the, the role of being uh, you know, one of the people. But that's a struggle. And definitely Jesus' day, it was, I would say, more of one. I was listening to a sermon recently by John D. Martin, and he was, he was um, commentating on 1 Thessalonians 5, the verse that says, Respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And he made a good point. He said, look at this verse. It says, they're over you, but it also says, they labor among you. And that's how it should be. Laboring alongside 
rubbing shoulders, working together. And, and I think the final way in which um, leaders in Christ teams should be different is when it comes to um, input, their input. And I think one way in which leaders can become domineering is, is if they, um, even if they feel like they've got the right goals, uh, is if they decide that they don't, uh, if they have no interest in what the, the congregation is thinking, I think that's a problem. I think that is a way in which we can resemble Gentile rulers that Jesus is talking about. I'm not a historian, but I don't think that the Gentile rulers Jesus was describing were typically interested in what the common people thought. Unless they were going to riot, then they were interested. Or unless they were going to work in their favor for um, gaining more authority. People pleasing. But in God's kingdom, leaders should be interested in, in the input of their people. So every member of Christ's kingdom, whatever level of authority he has, should use his authority to serve. This is, this is the path. This is the call that Jesus is pointing us to. Lowly service. And that kind of wraps up the, the walkthrough of that passage, verses 20-28. And I want to take a step back and and pick out some lessons. I picked out four lessons from this passage, and you'll probably see more. These are the four I picked out. Number one, one lesson we learned from this is that those who suffer greatly for Christ will be honored greatly. Jesus said that right in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It is an honor to suffer for Christ. And it did not take long for James and John and the other nine at that point, the uh, disciples, to, to get their first sip of this cup of stuff that Jesus was talking about. When the Sanhedrin seized them in Acts chapter 5 and jailed them and beat them, and from the loose, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer. Those who suffer will be honored greatly. It doesn't make me stop caring about the persecuted church or wishing that, or, or stop wishing that the persecution would, would stop. But it is some comfort to think about God is paying attention to what's going on and He will reward these people greatly. A second lesson is that committed followers of Christ will eventually grow up. Uh, James and John were pretty clueless, immature, overconfident. But Jesus says, yes, someday you will suffer with me. Uh, someday you will have what it takes to drink the same cup that I, that I have to drink. And they did. James was, interestingly enough, the first apostle to die for Christ. He had it about 10 to 15 years later after this incident in Matthew 20. Uh, John did not die for Christ that we know of, but he suffered for Christ. He was exiled on the island of Patmos, and he talks about it like this. John, your brother and partner, in the tribulation and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, on, on account for the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That comes from Revelation chapter, Revelation chapter 1. You know, and I have to think that if we had been present 
when James and John and their mom came up to Jesus with this request, we would have been very unimpressed and disappointed uh, by, these, by these two characters and their behavior and thinking. They have a long way to go, and, and they did. But they grew up. Followers of Christ eventually grow up, so long as they're serious about walking with Christ. The third point I'd like to make is a simple one, which is that pursuing greatness causes division. All these disciples wanted greatness, and the result of this incident was that everybody was mad at James and John. They were not a better unit. They were worse off because of James and John's pursuit. And in the same way, chasing greatness hurts God's kingdom. And this mission, Diotrephes, chasing point. John, a third John, describes a fellow named Diotrephes, who he says, loved to have preeminence. John himself had some tendencies at that point, at some point. I mean, he used to be like that, but not anymore. Diotrephes loved that preeminence, and that love resulted in him being very divisive and stuck to that church. How can a circle of believers be of one mind when one person is pursuing his own agenda and wants to be elevated above others? You know, if, if that circle stays of one mind, there's something wrong. There should be some division at that point. In a recent ministers meeting a couple of weeks back, Sam was sharing to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, which talks about the servants of Christ. And, the, and one of the Greek words that's used there in describing servants is a word that means under rower. And um, means someone who is manning the oars on, on the lower deck. And on a Roman galley, there would have been probably several rows, actually, of, of oars. And maybe even several people uh, running a single oar. But everything had to, had to be kept in sync, or it, it just was not going to work. Uh, everyone had to be pulling together and, and in the same timing. But if you would imagine one of the under rowers deciding, I'm going to show everyone my upper body strength, and uh, we're going to take a slight detour here to the side and start rowing in a different direction. Suddenly, it's going to be all kinds of collision and mayhem and division, and, and the church said the, the, the boat, the church, or whatever, is not going to go in the direction it should. Because of one guy with his own agenda. So under rowers have to row together. And that means they have to be following the same leader, right? The fourth point I want to make is that God rewards lowly service. True greatness, true honor comes from God. God exalts those who humble themselves. He does not exalt those who exalt themselves. Um, you think of the account of the publican and the Pharisee and, and so on. And the best example of one who humbled himself and was exalted was Christ. Humbled himself more than anyone else and was exalted highly. God prizes lowly service. It's really the only kind of service that he's interested in. All other kinds of service, even if it looks lowly on the outside, if it's not truly lowly service done from the heart, 
with a servant's heart. It is not laying up treasure in heaven. It is going to the, a different account. If the person is not truly entering into a service with a lowly mindset, it's not what God is looking for. I, I had to think of um, years ago when I was in Romania teaching school in Romania, we went to a, to a tavern, a uh, school field trip. We went to a tavern to tour this tavern, and, and it was really neat because it was completely un-tour-friendly. Uh, meaning the entrance, the entrance was a, was a cave uh, out of which a stream came, and we approached this thing, and there was, you know, this rock wall that was quite low. And to get in, you had to, you didn't have to get on your, on, on all four, but you had to scoot way down to get inside this cavern, kind of gave you claustrophobia as you got in, and, and then things opened up a bit. Um, and so it was a very lowly entrance into this passageway. But then once you got inside, it was a pretty good-sized cavern, and, and there were beautiful rock formations and these little underground pools of water. And uh, there weren't any lights down there. We just had uh, minor headlamps or, or whatever. And it was, it was a really neat experience. But, you know, if I had come to that entrance at the beginning and said, no, I'm not going to crawl down under that thing to get inside this cavern. I'm going to take the high road and just crawl up the bank and kept on marching along. I could have covered essentially the same route, come out at the same exit point, you know, and said, you know, here we are again. I did the same thing. But I was totally missed out on on uh, the experience I was supposed to have. Um, I would have missed out on, on the beauty of the cavern. I would have missed out on what was intended. And um, I would have missed out on the reward, the reward of that experience. And in the same way, when we try to serve without lowliness, it is, it is not... Uh, we are missing out on its reward. We are missing out on the reward that God would have for us. So those are the four lessons I, I picked out. I want to briefly talk about uh, this problem of pursuing greatness and, and how we might recognize it in our own lives. Uh, James and John had no subtlety. They really didn't. Now, there are a lot, many more quiet ways to pursue greatness. Um, more quiet ways than getting your mom to ask for peace of, of power. So I'd like to give you four ways in which we can quietly pursue greatness, four ways in which we can passive-aggressively pursue greatness. The first one is um, just being stingy about praise for our peers. I don't know if you've ever found this, but sometimes it's almost easier to praise someone from outside the community than someone that's right here with you. And I don't know if that's because you, you kind of know each other's faults better and imperfections, but I think part of the reason can be that um, we might not really like to see those right, our peers elevated. A stingy phrase for peers is a way to passive-aggressively pursue greatness. That's the next thing to desiring elevation for ourselves. The second way in which we could quietly pursue greatness is by focusing on flaws, um, kind of nitpicking at others, 
even if we're carrying concerns in a very gentle and humble way, we need to probably check ourselves and just make sure that, that the, the, the motive back there is not actually a motive to keep other people's low. So that's something to, to watch out for, a focus on flaws. A third way is just simply keeping quiet about our own failures. Not every failure needs to be broadcast from the rooftops, but if we never confess our faults to the brothers, uh, we're being unbiblical, we're not following Scripture, we need to ask, why is that not happening? It's because we don't want people to know that we're imperfect. We've got a facade to maintain. We've got this greatness thing to maintain an image, and that quickly becomes a graven image, doesn't it? So keeping quiet about our own failures. And fourthly, this one might surprise you, I think the fourth way to quietly pursue greatness is through lowly service. Pseudo-lowly service. Where we're involved in service and, and, and maybe are thinking a little too much about how people might admire our humility and our servant's heart. It's not really lowly service. So that's a motive to watch out for. So four lessons from this story, from James, John, and the mom, uh, were those who suffer greatly will be honored greatly. Committed followers of Christ will grow up. We should expect that. Chasing greatness causes division. We should expect that. God rewards lowly service. And it's easy. That was the four lessons. And we, we just talked about some ways in which it's easy to quietly pursue greatness we need to be on guard for that. Is there a right way to pursue greatness? I think that's um, how I'll go into our conclusion here. Is there a right way to pursue greatness? I think it's okay to want to be great for God and to do great things for God. I'm okay with that. But you don't pursue greatness. There is no way to pursue greatness for the sake of greatness in the right way. I don't think so. I think pursuing greatness because you want to be elevated above others is just badly disguised pride. Now the Bible has a fair amount to say about heavenly rewards, and I think it's okay to be motivated by them. Paul says we should run for an imperishable crown. He says we run for an imperishable wreath. That's the first Corinthians 9. Uh, the book of Revelation talks about the crown of life, hidden manna, new name on a white stone, different rewards for people who are faithful. On the Sermon on the Mount, we already looked at this. Jesus talked about great rewards for those who are persecuted for him. And Jesus, of course, encourages us to lay up treasure in heaven. I think it's okay for us to be um, motivated by reward and encouraged by the thought of a heavenly reward, but there's a big difference between pursuing greatness and pursuing the heavenly reward. And the big difference is that we want everyone to receive the heavenly reward and we are not pursuing some position above others. We want everyone to get these rewards. And, and the thing about the rewards that make them beautiful is what they signify, not 
Like, I mean, how much value is a wreath, really? If it is, even if it is going to last forever, how much value is there in that wreath? Not, not much, really. It's what it signifies, which is that we have been faithful. And that is, that is what we should all be pursuing, a faithful servant who has done well and who has served in lowliness and um, tried to follow Christ's example of seeking those who are lost and serving our brothers and sisters in the church. God bless you.